Lynching Pulse Cards, A Token of a Great Day. It's a documentary, 2021. Um, the synopsis for this documentary that you can watch are streaming. During 1880 through 1968, over 4,000 African Americans were lynched at the hands of white mobs. These lynchings were commemorated through souvenir postcards that would ultimately be subverted by black activists to expose the racist violence in the U.S. This information is on imdb.com. Now I'm going to read you some information that's on Wikipedia under the content of lynching postcard. A lynching postcard is a postcard bearing the photograph of a lynching. A vigilante murder, usually motivated by racial hatred, intended to be distributed, collected, or kept as a souvenir. Often a lynching postcard would be inscribed with racist text or poems. Lynching postcards were widespread production for more than 50 years in the United States, although their distribution through the U.S. Postal Service was banned in 1908. Now, to in the upper right corner on Wikipedia, they have a very gruesome picture that I am guessing is was also an image on a postcard, and I'm going to read the caption. A colorized postcard of the lynching of Virgil Jones, Robert Jones, Thomas Jones, and Joseph Riley on July 31, 1908 in Russellville, Kentucky. Under the next subheading of description, terror lynchings as a display of racial domination peaked around the 1880s through to the 1940s and were less frequent until the 1970s, especially, but not exclusively, in the Southern United States. Lynchings were widely used to intimidate recently emancipated African Americans after the Civil War Reconstruction era, and were later used to intimidate voters and civil rights workers of all ethnic backgrounds. Mostly African-American men, women, and children were lynched for a lack of subservience or for success in business. Others were often accused of crimes and forcibly removed from their homes or jails to be murdered by a white supremacist mob without due process or presumption of innocence. Spectators sold one another souvenirs, including postcards. Often the photographer was one of the killers. In a typical lynching postcard, the victim is displayed prominently at the center of the shot, while smiling spectators, often including children, crowd the margins of the frame, posing for the camera to prove their presence. Facial expressions suggesting remorse, guilt, shame, or regret are very rare. Cultural significance. Some purchasers use lynching postcards as ordinary postcards, communicating unrelated events to friends and relatives. Others resold lynching postcards at a profit. Still others collected them as historic objects or racist paraphernalia. Their manufacture and continued distribution was part of white supremacist culture and has been likened to bigot 
pornography. Whatever their use, the cultural message embodied in most lynching postcards was one of racial superiority. Historian Amy Louise Wood argues, within specific localities, viewers did not disconnect the photographs from the actual lynchings they represented. Through that particularity, the images served as visual proof of the uncontested truth of white civilized morality over and against supposed black bestiality and savagery. Viewed from an outsider's perspective, bereft of local content, <laughs> the photographs symbolize white power more generally. White citizens were depicted as victorious over powerless, murdered black victims, and the pictures became part of secular iconography. I'm sorry, uh, secular iconography. Richard Lacayo, writing for Time magazine, noted in 2000, even the Nazis did not stoop to selling souvenirs at Auschwitz, but lynching scenes became a burgeoning sub-department of the postcard industry. By 1908, the trade had grown so large and the practice of sending postcards featuring the victims of murderers had become so repugnant that the U.S. Postmaster General banned the cards from the mails. As late as the 21st century, James Allen was able to acquire a collection of lynching postcards from dealers who offered them in whispered tones and Palestine marketplaces. In the sub uh, subject of legality, some towns had censored lynching photographs earlier in the 20th century, but the first step toward nationwide censorship came in 1908. The 1873 Cornstock Act had forbidden the publication of obscene matter as well as its circulation in the mails. In 1908, uh, the Comstock Act extended the ban to material tending to incite arson, murder, or assassination. Although this act did not explicitly ban lynching postcards themselves, it banned the racist texts that often accompanied them, which made too explicit what was all, always implicate and implicated in lynchings. Despite the amendment, the distribution of lynching photographs and postcards continued, now concealed with envelopes or mail wrappers. Okay, so now I'm going to look under, still under Wikipedia, uh, lynching, lynchings in the United States, and specifically under lynching um, postcards. So the subtitle is Photographic Records and Postcards, and then in smaller italics is Main Article Lynching Postcard. At the start of the 20th century in the United States, lynching was photographic sport. Sport. People sent picture postcards of lynchings they had witnessed. A writer for the Times, okay, so they also give the content um, from the Time magazine, okay, about um, the Nazis making reference to the Nazis and them not even doing that and how horrific all of that was. They didn't even, you know, lower themselves to do such things. Okay, so I'm going to go on and read 
more content. In the post-Reconstruction era South, um, lynching photographs were printed for various purposes, um, including postcards, newspapers, and event uh, mementos. Typically, these images depicted an African-American lynching victim and all or part of the crowd in attendance. Spectators often included women and children. The perpetrators of the lynchings were not identified. At one particular lynching, it is said that nearly 15,000 people were in attendance. Often lynchings were advertised in newspapers prior to the event in order to give photographers time to arrive early and prepare their camera equipment. After the lynching, photographers would sell their pictures as is or as postcards, sometimes costing as much as 50 cents a piece or $9 as of 2016. Look at that. What? Okay. Though some photographs were sold as plain prints, others contained captions. These captions were either straightforward details such as the time, the date, and reasons for the lynching, while others contain poems with racist or otherwise threatening remarks. An example of this is a photographic uh, postcard attached to the poem Dogwood Tree, which says, The Negro now, by eternal grace, must learn to stay in the Negro's place. In the sunny South, the land of the free, let the white supreme forever be. Such postcards will explicit rhetoric such as dogwood tree were typically circulated privately or mailed in sealed envelopes. Other times these pictures simply included the word warning. Okay, so now I'm going to read another section after it because I see a picture of Ida B. Wells. Okay, so resistance. African Americans emerged from the Civil War with the political experience and stature to resist attacks, but disenfranchisement uh, and imposition of Jim Crow in the South at the turn of the 20th century closed them out of the political system and judicial system in many ways. Advocacy organizations compiled statistics and publicized the atrocities as well as working for enforcement of civil rights and a federal anti-lynching law. From the early 1880s, the Chicago Tribune reprinted accounts of lynchings from other newspapers and published annual statistics. These provided the main source for the uh, completions by the Tuskegee Institute to document lynchings of practice. It continued until 1968. <laughs> in 1892, journalist Ida B. Wells Barnett was shocked when three friends in Memphis and Tennessee were lynched. She learned it was because their grocery store had competed successfully against a white-owned store. Outraged, Wells Barnett began a global anti-lynching campaign that raised awareness of these murders. She also investigated lynchings and overturned the common idea that they were based on black sexual crimes. As was properly discussed, she found lynchings were more an effort to suppress blacks who competed economically with whites, especially if they were successful. 
As a result of her efforts at education, black women in the United States became active in the anti-lynching crusade, often in the form of clubs that raised money to publicize the abuses. When the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was formed in 1909, Wells became part of its multiracial leadership and continued to be an active activist against lynching. In 1898, Alexander Manley of North Carolina directly challenged popular ideals about lynching in an editorial in his newspaper, The Daily Record. He noted that consensual relationships took place between white women and black men and said that many of the latter had white fathers, as he did. His references to this lifted the veil of denial. Whites were outraged. A mob destroyed his printing press and business, ran black leaders out of town and killed many others and overturned the biracial populist Republican city government headed by a white mayor and majority white council. Manley escaped, eventually settling in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In 1904, Mary Church Terrell, the first president of uh, the National Association of Colored Women, published an article in the magazine North American Review to respond to Southerner Thomas Nelson Page. She analyzed and refuted with data his attempted justification of lynching as a response to assaults by black men on white women. Terrell showed how apologists like Page had tried to rationalize with these violent mob actions that were seldom based on assaults. African-American newspapers such as the Chicago, Illinois newspaper, the Chicago Whip, and the National uh, Association for the Advancement of Colored People magazine, The Crisis, would not just merely report lynchings, they would denounce them as well. Indeed, in 1919, this particular organization would have published 30 years of lynching and hang a black flag outside its office. Under lynchings in America, I'm going to also go on to read about um, the subtitle of New Klan. Um, in italics, it says the Ku Klux Klan. In 1915, three events highlighted racial and social tensions. The distribution of D.W. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation. The lynching of Leo Frank, a Jewish factory manager in Atlanta, Georgia. And the revival of the Ku Klux Klan near Atlanta. D.W. Griffith's 1915 film, The the birth of a nation glorified the original Klan as protecting white Southern women during Reconstruction, which uh, he portrayed as a time of violence and corruption, following the Dunning School's interpretation of history. The film aroused great controversy. It was popular among whites in the South, but it was protested uh, against by other civil rights groups, which were able to get it banned in some cities and also uh, garnered uh, much national publicity. Now, in 1915, Leo Frank, an American Jew, was lynched near uh, Atlanta, Georgia. 
1913, Frank had been convicted of the murder of Mary Fagan, a 13-year-old girl who was employed by his pencil factory. A series of appeals were filed on behalf of Frank by all of them were but all of them were denied. The final appeal was denied after a 7-2 decision was made by the US Supreme Court after Governor John M. Slayton commuted Frank's uh, sentence to life imprisonment, a group of men calling themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan kidnapped Frank from a prison farm um, in a planned um, air event that included cutting the, uh, oh, the prison's telephone wires. They transported him 175 miles back to Marietta near Atlanta where they lynched him in front of a mob. On November 25, 1915, two months after Frank was lynched, a group of men which were led by William J. Simmons burned a cross on top of Stone Mountain, inaugurating the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK. The event was attended by 15 charter members and a few aging former members of the original OGs of the Klan. The Klan and their use of lynching was supported by some public officials, okay, John Throddenwood Moore, um, the state librarian and activist, arch, archivist, let me say it, archivist of Tennessee from 1919 to 1929. Uh, Moore became one of the South's most stringent advocates of lynching. The Klan grew uh, after that date to the majority of white Protestants' anxieties and fears over the rapid pace of change and economic and social competition. It promoted itself as a fraternal organization for ethnic Northern Europeans in new urban environments. Many African-American migrants moved north during the Great Migration, resulting in labor shortages in most of rural South. In addition, they also migrated to some rapidly growing southern industrial cities. At the same time, the United States was receiving millions of immigrants from Mexico, the Middle East, and East Asia, and southern and eastern Europe who settled in northeastern, midwestern, and western industrial cities. As a result, the Klan grew rapidly and became most successful and strongest in those cities that had a rapid growth and pace from 1910 to 1930, such as the southern cities of Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> Dallas, Texas, and non-southern cities of Detroit, Michigan, Indiana, Chicago, Illinois, Portland, Oregon, and Denver, Colorado. It reached a peak of membership and influence about 1925. In some cities, non-Protestant leaders' actions to publish names of Klan members and override its secrecy provided enough publicity to sharply reduce membership. They didn't want people to know, but they were proud of it. Wow, look at that. In 1919 was one of the worst years for lynching. Okay, boy, that must have really made them sad. With at least 70, 76 people were killed in a mob or vigilante-related violence. Of these more than 11 African-American veterans who had served in the recently completed war were lynched in that year. I think I guess that's thanking them for their service to the United States. We'll lynch you, huh?
right? So that last piece that I read, of course, made me curious. So we're still on Wikipedia, and we're under the title African American Veterans Lynched After World War One. After young African American men volunteered to fight against the Central Powers during World War One, many of them returned home. But rather than being rewarded for their military service, they were subjected to discrimination and racism by the citizens and the government. Labor shortages in essential industries caused a massive migration of Southern African Americans to Northern cities. Leading to a widespread emergency of segregation in the North and the regeneration—just what we need, right—of the KKK. We just couldn't live without that, could we? For many African American veterans, as well as the majority of the African Americans in the U.S., the times which followed the war were fraught with challenges similar to those they faced overseas. Discrimination and segregation were at the forefront of everyday life, but most prevalent in schools, public revenues, and housing. Although members of different races whom had fought in World War One believed that military service was a fair price worth paying in exchange for equal quotation marks citizenship. The joke's on you. Okay, this was not the case for African Americans. The decades following the World War One would include blatant acts of racism and nationally recognized events which conveyed society's portrayal. Let me say that again: portrayal of African Americans as second-class citizens. Surprise, not surprised. Although the United States had just won the Great War, wonder how they won it. How did you win? I, I, I wonder. I wonder. In 1918, the fight for national equal rights was just beginning. Thank you for your service, huh?、Uh, th- this article focused on African Americans who were lynched after World War One. Surprise, not. Okay, so I'm going to skip to the subtitle: Reaction to Returning Veterans. Historically, when a war is over, those who served are lauded for the hero, you know, heroism, heroism, and patriotism. However, that has not always been the case for American soldiers of African descent. African American soldiers who served in World War One were treated worse before, during, and after the war than any other group of American soldiers. During a homecoming celebration for African American veterans of World War One in Virginia, a race riot broke out on July twenty first, nineteen nineteen. At least two people were killed and three others were injured. City officials had to call in the Marines and the Navy personnel to restore order. On August sixteenth, nineteen seventeen, Senator James K. Vardaman of Mississippi spoke of his fear of black vet- veterans returning to the South. Fear, you say? Okay, you're, you're fearful, huh? As he viewed that it would inevitably lead to the Big D disaster. To the American South, the use of black soldiers in the military was a threat, not a virtue. Impress the Negro with the fact that he is defending the flag, inflate his untutored soul with military airs, and teach him that it is his duty to keep the emblem of the nation of the nation flying triumphantly in the air. 
and the senator cautioned, it is but a short step to the conclusion that his political rights must be respected. Hmm. Often violence broke out between serving members of the military. In both the Bisbee riots, July 3rd, 1919, and the New London riots of 1919, active uh, African-American service members were attacked by white mobs or white military units. Many black soldiers in the years after the war were threatened with violence if they were caught wearing their uniform. Hmm. Many others were even physically attacked, sometimes barely escaping with their lives. During April 5th, 1919, Market Day in Sylvester, Georgia, black veteran Daniel Mack was walking through a busy street and brushed against a white man. The white man was offended that Mack did not show the proper amount of respect and the two got in a scuffle. Police came on the scene and promptly arrested Mack Oh my God, arrested Mac for assault. He was sentenced to 30 days in prison. A few days into his sentence on April 14th, a white mob broke into the prison. It seems pretty friendly, just break in there so easy, huh? And took him out into the wilderness and lynched him. He survived by playing dead. Okay, way to go. No arrests were ever made. So they break into a prison and attempt to lynch this man and <laughs> no arrests were ever made. Okay, Alicia uh, Harper, 25 years old, was the son. Oh, was oh Alicia Harper? Okay, was the son hmm, of Reverend T. F. Harper, a, a respectable and well-behaved preacher living in Helena. He fought in the army during World War One and just returned from Europe on July 24th, 1919, while walking. Here we go again, walking the streets of Newberry, South Carolina. He allegedly insulted a 14-year-old girl who promptly reported him to the authorities. Wow, danger, danger, Dan here. Okay, Harper was arrested and thrown in jail. Soon, a white mob, when in doubt, the white mob comes out, had gathered and would have lynched Harper if he was not for the local sheriff who hid him away. Thank God for that sheriff, huh? Military service provided by African-Americans overseas and at home made little difference in the citizenship for African-Americans. Society in America still perceived African-Americans the same after the war as they did before the war. Now, the next subtitle on Wikipedia is the lynched African-American veterans. It says the following is an incomplete list of African-Americans who had served in the military during World War I and were killed by white mobs with no trials for alleged crimes. Lynching is embedded deep in America's racial psyche. By 1919, lynching had developed into a pragmatic ritual of torture and empowerment to the white race. The accurate amount of African-American veterans lynched in military uniform is unknown. They like they like to like uh, make postcards and, and, and statistical things about it. I kind of don't buy that because it seemed like they were getting off on that, if I may interject my editorial comments here. 
but it's unknown all of a sudden. Okay, there were uh, several cases of beatings and lynchings for the refusal to remove their military uniform. Now, they serve in it, but that's how they got the uniform but they don't want them to wear the uniform or be seen wearing them. Does that make sense? I don't think so. Most notably, the lynching of Wilbur Little in the spring of 1919. Oh, and now they give a big old chart of people who were lynched. Oh my God. The vast majority of lynchings after took place in the southeast region of the United States. The three states with the largest amount of African-American lynchings from 1850 to 1929 were Georgia, Mississippi, good old Mississippi, and Texas. Okay, so I'm not going to read, I haven't decided if I'm going to read all of them or not. So there's a chart of the lynchings here. Um, The first one, the name is unknown. It says it's in Pine Bluff. Okay, the county is Jefferson and the state is Arkansas. The accusations uh, or accusation is the insult of a white woman refused to move off a sidewalk for a white woman. So I guess he was walking on the same sidewalk as a white woman. He was tied to a tree with tire chains and shot as many as 50 times. Okay, then you have Private Charles Lewis. Okay, the city is um, Tyler Station near Hickman. The county or the parish is Fulton, and the state is Kentucky. Um, The date is December 16th, 1918. The accusation, alleged robbery. The lynching, mass men stormed the jail, smashed the locks with a sledgehammer, and hanged him from a tree. Okay, the next name is not a name at all. It's just just a black vet and a black woman. Pickens, Holmes, Mississippi, May 5th, 1919. The accusation, insult of a white woman. And then it has a black woman wrote an improper note to a young white woman. Okay, so I guess the unidentified black woman that was with the black vet wrote a note to a white woman makes no sense and it doesn't say anything in the uh, description of the lynching it's blank okay then we have sergeant john green uh in jefferson alabama okay june 12 1919 uh, accusation asking for change from a conductor aboard a segregated outbound pratt etsley streetcar to dozer park They shot him three times in the head. The next name is Clinton Briggs, okay, from Lincoln, Washington, Arkansas, August 3rd, 1919. His accusation, insult of a white woman. Seems like that's very prevalent. Moved too slowly out of the white woman's way. He was chained to a tree and shot till he died. L.B. Reed, Clarksdale, Mississippi. September 10th, 1919, suspected of having a relationship with a white woman. He was hanged from the bridge across the Sunflower River. Wow. And the list goes on. It seems like there's several that just go down the line, at least four or five of them that I'm looking at now. Um that say alleged assault, alleged assault of a white woman. And they were basically shot by a mob. 
Um, then you go down to, okay, no, that's alleged assault of a white woman. <laughs> Chained to a stake, burnt alive. His skull was split with a hatchet and pieces given to onlookers as souvenirs. So it's not just postcards. They split open his skull and passed out the pieces as souvenirs. But it's black people that are savages and barbaric. That's interesting. The mob dragged this particular person's body, Lucius McCarty. The mob dragged his body behind a car, killing him before burning his corpse in a bonfire. Powell Green, North Carolina, Franklin, North Carolina, December 27, 1919. Allegedly shot R.M. Brown, the white owner of a movie theater in Franklinton. Okay, let's see. Rope tied around his neck, dragged for two miles behind an automobile, then hanged from a pine sapling. And then, unfortunately, we come to Wilbur Little, uh, Blakely, early Georgia, spring of 1919, refusal to remove military uniform. We spoke of him a little while ago. He was beaten to death in uniform by a mob. Clearly, he didn't take it off, so he had to die for it. Leroy Johnston, Helena Phillips, Arkansas, October the 1st, 1919, was killed by a mob during the Elaine Massacre after the mob claimed they fired first. He, along with his three brothers, were pulled off a train by a group of white men. All were shot several times and killed during a scuffle. Leroy was a bugler in the Harlem Hellfighters. All right, so we're back. So we're still on Wikipedia, and we're looking at um, the subject of African-American veterans lynched after World War I. So I've already went through um, the list of uh, veterans um, that were lynched, killed, uh, once they returned home. So now we're going to talk about their white um, um, veteran counterparts, and let's see how they were treated going to read the information to you. The return home was not perfect for any one group of people leading to the development of the bonus armies, whatever that may mean, I guess I'm gonna look that up too, and many other displays of displeasement. A majority of World War I veterans believed that they had not been compensated enough for their service and they should have been taken better care of, especially in hospitals. I can see where they're coming from with that. It's unfortunately kind of the same now too, isn't it? However, there was still a major contrast in the treatment received from white and black veterans after World War I, leading to public unrest and yeah, loss of life. Yeah, loss of life, a lot of loss there. White veterans received far more recognition, surprise, from a national level for their bravery and sacrifice in the war. This included radio appearances, national headlines, and statues honoring their sacrifice. Oh, that's so sweet. The population of the United States in 1919 was over 85% white and almost all major media organizations were run by white males, leading to a disparity in the media attention for the entire African-American population. 
a monopolized media industry and racial prejudice from the white Americans led to the unwillingness to consistently recognize the efforts and much sacrifices of African-American veterans. In fact, one of the early 400,000 African-Americans who served in World War I, not one, let me say that one more again, not one was rewarded with the Congressional Medal of Honor until 1991. What? Let me say that one more again. In fact, out of nearly 400,000 African Americans who served in World War One, not one, not one, was rewarded with the Congressional Medal of Honor until 1991. When veterans came back home, there were various hmm, victory parades thrown in their honor in major cities. However, because segregation was still in place, no kidding, uh, there were separate parades, because it can't be together, no, thrown for African-American soldiers at a smaller scale. I'm surprised that even happened. During these parades, there would be several examples of, of course, civil unrest, most notable during a victory parade in Norfolk, Virginia. A race riot broke out on July 21st, 1919. They spoke of that previously. It was not just notoriety and praise that African-American veterans were lacking. The greatest gap between white and black veterans could be seen when examining financial stability. Hasn't changed much there. Socioeconomic status. On average, white Americans had far more resources and privileges to live at a higher quality of life.